0: Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're at episode 44. I'm going to pick up where I left off in episode 42, uh, where I was reminiscing uh, 1994. And uh, I think I got through about to about the middle of that year. Um, So, you know, roughly July or so, my daily life consisted mostly of going to think skateboards, to geographics, um, for the boards and t-shirts and stickers and wheels and whatever the hell they needed me to fuck with. And, uh, back then, if I remember correctly, I was working with Wade Spire, Phil Schau, uh, Eric Ricks, Dander Hobel. And uh, Paul Zwanich. There might have been more. There definitely were more later on. But I think that first year, that was the main crew. I think there was a dude, uh, Chamley. forget his first name. But he might have had a graphic or two in there too. But that was the main crew. Wade Spire was always pretty easy to uh, create graphics for. He leaned definitely towards like demon women and fire <laughs> and uh stuff like that like heavy metal kind of album cover inspired things um and he was you know relatively easy to please you know he would give me a idea or show me something he wanted me to fuck with and uh I would just go off and uh often when he would come back uh to see the graphic he would be super stoked and wouldn't ask me to change anything it was just ready to rock. He, he trusted me pretty well. I don't think he really cared too much about the graphics, you know, as long as they were selling. Uh, whereas, like, uh, Phil Schau, uh he was probably the smartest one of the bunch. I think he was going to Berkeley at the time. Uh, but he really didn't care so much about the graphics selling. I I don't think he was relying on board sales or anything. Uh, so he would bring me in these really kind of dumb ideas (laughs) that, uh, I would, you know, figure out a way to make it happen for him. And, uh, they, you know, like I said, he just didn't really care if the board sold well. I don't think, I think there was a few of his boards that sold pretty well, but admittedly, That might have been a little later on when I started just kind of drawing graphics and I would leave a space for a person's name and people would just come in and see those on the wall and just be like, oh shit, has anybody claimed that one? Can I put my name on that one? And I'd be like, hell yeah. So I kind of worked, I I learned how to work that little system and dealing with the pros. Um, Eric Ricks was fun to do graphics for. He was like a real hip hop dude. And knew I wrote graffiti and was cool with me kind of inflecting that stuff into the graphics and he was always super pumped when he saw uh saw the boards for the first time. It seemed like uh seemed like he might have known that his uh career in skateboarding might be pretty short, and he was just like fucking stoked to be there. And to be riding with the other guys on the team and just, uh, but he was super good, super smooth, like more of like a street skater. I don't know if he skated vert or anything at all. Um, I also worked with, uh, Dandra Hobel. He had the nickname Cancer Man back then because, well, I don't know if he still does, but he, <laughs> he uh, he would smoke a lot of cigarettes. Um, he always smelled like cigarettes and, uh, it was just one of those things like he would smoke while he was skating like bowls and vert ramps and stuff. And it was just this funny thing to see this guy just fucking kicking back, just uh, smoking a cigarette while he's zooming around, blasting airs and shit. And he had to like, I always liked, uh, kind of like lip tricks on mini ramps too. I always thought that people that did that were pretty sick and I could never. I didn't have the quick feet for a lot of that stuff. Uh but Dan was so fucking good at that kind of shit and it was so fun to watch him just like get loose. Um I actually did get to watch them get loose a lot cuz I wonder that might not have been 94 though. I think in 94 I was still at the Think Warehouse on Yosemite Street and we eventually moved up this uh, up a few blocks on I think it's Ingalls, um, right across the street from where they make Thrasher magazine, a place called High Speed Productions. And once I was over there, um at lunchtime and at break time, I think they were all timed together so people would spill out of Thrasher and spill out of Think and uh skate in the street and in this like uh like cutout for big trucks that had a kind of a like a ramp and a curb that you could jump over like a gap and people would get down and that was like I don't know that was just some super awesome random shit um, but yeah like uh, I guess uh, I don't know if I mentioned Paul Zwanich like I did graphics for him too he was really fun I liked hanging out with Paul some of the guys I would get a little annoyed <laughs> a little annoyed if they uh, would hang out in the in the art room while I was trying to work and stuff because they could be obnoxious. Uh, but Paul was always super chill. Uh, and some of my favorite graphics from my time at Think were for Paul. Uh, I used to get asked a lot back then, especially um, like from skateboarders asking, dude, isn't it the fucking coolest to work with pro skateboarders? And I would always have to kind of tell them not really, because often, you know, I can't. All the guys that I worked with that think were pretty cool, um, but I did end up meeting some people over the years in the skateboarding scene that like they're they're good at one thing, and that one thing might be skateboarding, and to get to be world class at one thing. Uh, sometimes everything else kind of falls to the wayside. So sometimes, you know, the people that are the best at things aren't really all that great to, like, have a conversation with or, uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it. It's, It's not like they're exciting people above and beyond what they do on a skateboard. Sometimes they can be really dull and kind of a, a bummer, you know, uh, but, you know, in the end, I, I thought I worked with a great bunch, especially that group in 94, when I was only there for, like, maybe a year at this point, um, and I wish I could remember exactly when Jake Phelps, who was the editor at Thrasher Forever, uh, he, got a warehouse, or they let him use one of the warehouses that uh, Fausto Vitello was leasing. He owned all of that like skateboard industry stuff in Northern California back then. And I think they called the ramp the Widowmaker. It was this big vert ramp in this big warehouse, and it was pretty much the only thing in the warehouse. And uh, I just remember... Well, again, let's see. I think that was when... I may have to go into that more in the 95 one i think that might have been the next year when we had moved the warehouse up to ingles street that i uh finally met uh jake phelps and the first time i met him i just was banging on the door of the warehouse where his ramp was and uh nobody was uh coming so i was just like kept kept banging on it you know and he he finally came to the door and threw it open and was like, what's your fucking problem? And I just remember being like, dude, this is my first time here. Hi, I work down the street. I work at Think. I was told to come here. I can bounce if you don't want me here. But I had no idea that I was making, you know, an, an annoying amount of noise. And just kind of stood my ground. And uh, he was just like, well, fuck, just don't fucking do that again. And I was like, no problem. Of course I won't, you know, are, are the think guys here? And he's like, yeah, come on in. So it's kind of like, I think a lot of people's first interactions with Jake Phelps, (laughs) where he would be really kind of aggressive. And, uh, I just knew a lot of old timers that were that way too. And if you just kind of are aggressive right back to them and let them know that you're not, you know, just some pushover, they end up respecting you and really wanting to be your friend. But very rarely do people actually stand up to fucking dickheads like that. But Jake was one of those guys. (laughs) I definitely would see him around a lot. You know, there was a a bar on uh, Market Street that uh, we would all go to. I I don't know what the connection there was, but it was like um, the, the guys from Think and from Real and from Thrasher and all that, they would all hang out at this, I wish I could remember the name of the bar, I, it's long gone, but it was on Market Street, it had a basement with a pool table, I did a big graffiti think piece that hung downstairs, so it was definitely like skater vibe, um, it was probably 80 to 90% skateboarders, um, whenever I was there, for better or worse, <laughs> uh, not a lot of girls. I think girls knew to steer clear of the dirty skateboarders or they'd end up sleeping on somebody's kitchen floor. (laughs) Um, but those were, those were really, really fucking fun times. I remember too, like I'd get super pumped watching everybody skate and do their thing. And I was still skating myself, but something about being around professionals just made me realize I wasn't that good. (laughs) So I didn't really feel like I wanted to go skate with them per se. So it felt like just such a knucklehead. Um, but I would go skating with my buddy Ben Lovejoy, who I worked in the art department with. We would go skate sometimes after work, uh, mostly around downtown. He lived in the Tenderloin. Um, or what would you call that? Yeah, I guess that's what you'd call it, where he lived. It was on Geary and ooh, like Mason or Taylor, something like that, if I remember correctly uh, but he, he was really fun to go cruise around with, he was, uh, vegan, and would always shave his head, and he was a cool cat, man, he was a mellow fellow, was really into art, he, I was I think he was married at the time, um, but, and super young, maybe only, like, you know, early 20s, and he was already married, I remember his wife was pretty cool, she made, like, stained glass, and she showed me that process of making stained glass pieces. and I've always thought that was cool. And I've wanted to fuck with that myself ever since. <laughs> that was fucking 94. <laughs> uh, but I, I also remember skating with Ben one afternoon. There was like a little curb cut in front of a garage. And you could ollie off of that and clear a little gap of sidewalk and stuff and land in an alley in Soma. And then continue on the sidewalk if you landed your trick or whatever, but you 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 were kind of like alleying into blind. You like uh, there was an alley there that you'd land in. So if a car came, you wouldn't see them coming at all uh, because a building would be to your left. So you'd alley out and you'd land, and sometimes there'd be a car right there. And sure enough, that happened. (laughs) Fucking Ben did a nice sweet alley, popped out. And just got hit by a car coming out of the alley. (laughs) And he rolled. And he was perfectly fine. I think his skateboard was fine too. uh, But he did legit get hit by a car right in front of me. (laughs) It's kind of... I mean, I laugh, I guess, because I'm a skateboarder. And it happens so often that, you know, you do something and you would get hit by a car. But, yeah, it was never terrible. I don't think I've seen anybody ever in my life get hit by a car that was like either standing or on a bicycle or on a skateboard that didn't just go up like fly up in the air and roll over the windshield or the roof or just you know fly kind of to the side of the car but i've never ever seen anybody go like under i don't know what it would take for somebody to get caught like under a car that would be the worst but i've i've never seen that happen luckily I i don't know if anybody i've even i don't know It's a random thing. I'm pretty high, so I'm just kind of floating on memory here. (laughs) So, uh, I think it was in July of 94. Uh, I went to, uh, back to Albuquerque to visit. Um, by that time, uh, my girlfriend that had been living in England was back in New Mexico back living in Albuquerque, kind of back to business as usual. But I was living in San Francisco and was killing it and really had no interest in moving back to Albuquerque. And she didn't really have any interest in moving to San Francisco. I think she still might have had a year of school left to do. I had bailed during the fourth year to do the skateboard job, so I didn't even leave with a degree. But I think she was trying to get her degree. Um, if I remember right, but in any case, I went back to Albuquerque, we hung out, um, we could tell it was a little weird, um, something was different, and I remember I, I got a tattoo from my friend Dano, (laughs) and, uh, my, my girlfriend was with me, and, uh, I think our appointment was for, like, 6 p.m., uh, and it was just us at the shop and then oh and and somebody was there I think at the shop so that we could hang out and wait for Dano and they said it might be a while and I was like that's cool you know we'll wait he's an old friend and so I think we ended up waiting at least an hour it might have been even longer (laughs) but Dano is pretty notorious uh, for, for doing that to people, his whole life, I think, I I don't know how, if his scheduling was better later in his life, but, uh, yeah, as long as I knew him, it was kind of a pain in the ass, but anyway, we, we, we were old friends from writing graffiti, he wrote wisdom, um, he actually passed away, I guess just last year, it was pretty recently, it might have been this year even, uh, But he he was a fucking maniac, and I think back then, I'm not exactly sure what he was using, but I think he was using heroin, and that was kind of one of the reasons he was really late, and he was, I think, also really nervous about tattooing me, knowing that I lived in San Francisco, and he was, you know, really looked up to the San Francisco tattooers as like the best in the world. And knew that I would be showing that shit off when I would meet people, you know. So he was really wanted to make it super fucking excellent, you know. A lot of colors, a lot of detail, a lot of subtle shading and stuff. It still looks really good. It's it's pretty amazing. It's faded quite a bit, but not not as much as I thought it would. It's in there, uh, but it, it it was an adventure. Like he he probably it probably took him about an hour or so to get the outline in there and then he said he needed to go use the bathroom and he was gone for like 20 30 minutes in the bathroom and I remember me and Lori looking at each other like, what the fuck do I, what do I do? Do I go knock on the door? Is he okay? Like, what's I, you know, is he just got to take a big shit? I don't know. <laughs> so, but we just, we, we got through it. You know, I remember him being pretty sweaty and kind of glassy eyed and, you know, nervous. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I just figured that's how he was when he was working. Cause he wasn't always like that when we were hanging out. Um, but he did, he did give me a really fucking good tattoo. It took like three and a half hours that these days might take somebody maybe an hour and a half or two, but it was amazing. Uh, a lot of the details kind of lost in it now cause he was doing like lines in color and that doesn't usually last. It eventually kind of expands and just looks like a, almost like a gradient. Uh, but that was a, that was a fucking fun adventure. at at that point I had very few tattoos I think I only had two to be honest uh so that was one of those great early adventures the tattoo is a Balinese mask too if anybody's curious uh just look that up Balinese mask it's like these masks that they use for uh like folk uh dances and plays and things uh but they're they're super rad and uh, I've always loved them and still love them and I think they're a great uh, thing to get tattooed there's lots of different uh if you learn about the folklore there's lots of different specific uh masks that represent specific deities and whatnot and uh, that can be really a really fascinating thing to to look into so i'm there i was probably there for a week or two I saw family ate at my favorite restaurants and towards the end of the trip uh Lori and I hung out again, I think the last time we hung out was at her place, and we just sat down and had a nice conversation, and by the end of it, quite, you know, rationally and calmly had decided to break up, it was kind of, you know, it was my first real breakup, Uh, she was my first girlfriend, I think we'd been together for a few years at that point, were really really familiar with each other and had gotten into like a groove and uh yeah so so we broke up I remember it was in the afternoon uh because I could still picture her living room in the light and there was a stairwell that went to the second floor like a staircase and uh I think it was her idea but I'm not sure I think it was her idea though to have sex one more time uh before we part. Uh, I don't know. I'd never have that happen since where (laughs) we broke up and then decided to have sex one more time. Uh, But that time we did. And uh, we fucked each other like we never had before. Like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like there were certain positions that she wasn't comfortable with you know so i think i kind of might have got into like a, uh, i don't know it's like we, we would have sex the same way every time and you know had for a while it was, and it was always really good like the orgasms were always amazing and we were very much in love but something about that last time it's like we just fucked each other um just as human beings and we ended up like going up on the stairs and fucking all crazy different positions on the stairs and I feel like I remember her laughing and being like why the fuck did we never do this before you know and I'm like I don't know I don't know I think we both just felt really free because we had just broken up to just be ourselves so to speak you know but yeah, I don't know. That was that was a fucking crazy experience, and uh, and I th- I just think I just gave her a kiss and said goodbye, knowing that that we were done, you know, and it was all good. No, I don't think we cried. There was no hard feelings. It was just done. That was that was that was notab- notable for sure in my in my past, you know, breaking up with the first girlfriend, but also then that excitement going back to San Francisco as a single guy having only been with really well there was a time when uh, Lori and I were broke up maybe just after about a year of us seeing each other and we just kind of weren't sure about our connection and you know if we should see other people so we decided to do that and I did have sex with a girl I think her name was Kathy and it was awful, and I knew right then, I needed to get back with Lori, because there was, I don't know, I really was in love with her, and was still was, so I just, I needed to get her back, and luckily she felt the same way, and it was fucking incredible, I remember when we reconnected, but in any case, by, <laughs> let's say, July of 94, it was done, so, I go back to San Francisco and get back into the groove and I'm not like actively like trying to get laid or try to hook up with girls. I think I needed some time to adjust to being a single guy. So I took my time. Um, I remember flirting a lot back then with uh, Stephanie. She was this girl that worked at the print uh, shop that uh, printed all the skateboards for Think and a bunch of other companies. Um, all the Fausto Vitello companies, and also they printed the t shirts and the stickers. It was a big fucking place. They probably employed twenty twenty some people uh but i'd have to go there with my original artwork and they would shoot films uh film positives of my artwork and then I would use the the film as a guide to cut Ruby Lith. Uh, to create the color separations. So I would cut one sheet of ruby lith. And ruby lith was basically like this red film attached to a clear film and you could pull away the red film if you just cut through just that, so if you didn't cut too deep. So you just needed to have a really sharp exacto blade. But then you'd have these, uh, so you'd have like a a big clear sheet with black print on it of the original artwork. And then over top of that, I'd layer this ruby lith. And wherever I wanted to have a color underneath the black artwork, I would just cut away everything around it and peel it off so it was clear. And then you'd take those sheets, basically like stencils, and you'd put them in a against a a, a silk screen that had photochemicals on it and you put it in a like a vacuum sealed uh, contraption I guess is the word to say there was also a bright light and so the the bright light would come on for a certain amount of time and it would expose the photographic emulsion that was on the soak screen and where the uh the black on the film or the ruby lith was it uh, wouldn't be exposed on the silkscreen so you light it up you let it dry and then you uh, just spray it off with water I think is all you need to do and where the screen wasn't exposed to light where it was blocked it'll wash out um, so then you're left with this really tight stencil of, of uh, of the work that's ready to then be put into a rig and uh, actually silkscreened uh to the boards. And back then, too, the actual silkscreen rigs were curved. So they had a flat middle section and then the ends dipped down to match the angle of the uh, kicktail tail uh, and the nose on a on a skateboard back then. Uh, so you were able to silkscreen over a a complex curve. Normally people are just using silkscreen for flat objects or nearly flat. Uh, and to try to do it on a skateboard is really tricky. Nowadays they just print, uh, they silkscreen onto clear vinyl and then they attach the vinyl to a skateboard. So they're not actually silkscreening the boards anymore. They have a much easier process. But when that switched, a lot of people that were Highly professional silkscreen printers in the skateboard industry just lost their jobs uh, forever because they were no longer needed because the vinyl was very very easy to put on. So you didn't need to uh, pay one of these like really specialized silk screen printers thirty dollars an hour to do your skateboards for you. You could just pay somebody some you know sixteen year old really ten bucks an hour to. Put the vinyl on the, the 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 decks themselves. So that was a that was a little later on. It was more like '98 by the time that happened. But at any time, at any rate, I think I was talking about Stephanie at first, because <laughs> she was a big draw to go to uh, Print Time. She was uh, pretty tall, and she she had a just the most cracking body, this big red haired white girl, I think she was from Texas, and she had this great accent, she would wear these cool heels, not like, like, heels you'd wear to a nightclub or anything, like, big chunky heel, um, and dresses and stuff to this print shop, and man, she always looked so cute and smelled so good, I had such a terrible crush on her, um, I, I don't know if it was mutual. I'll bet everybody hit on her. I mean, it was just... I don't know how you couldn't really. <laughs> uh, but we got to be good friends. And uh, I would hang out with her outside of work sometimes. Uh, she was living down on uh, Lower Hate Street. Um, and back then there was th- these projects on Lower H Street, that we called the Pink Projects, if I remember right, because they were painted pink. And it was kind of like a full city block that was maybe three stories, I think, high. And the buildings kind of made a ring around the whole block right at the sidewalk. And then there was a big open courtyard in the middle. And there was ways to go from the sidewalk to the inner courtyard, you know, all over the place, Um, but it was the projects, uh, so it was sketchy, because if anybody did some crime nearby, and the police chased them, if they got to the projects, the police wouldn't chase them into the projects, because they were exposed to real danger in the middle, because there were people with guns, all over the place that could just shoot them as soon as they went in the inner courtyard. Uh, I learned this from a a friend that's a police officer. I don't know if he still is there. Dave Nastari, Dave Nasty was his street name. (laughs) Fucking Dave would give me the lowdown on, on things like that. Um, so I remember being at Stephanie's one night. I think it was a Friday night. Uh, and I got pretty drunk at her place, I had a a terrible crush on one of her roommates, this girl named Morgan, and uh, so it was kind of a double whammy, good vibes to go over there, all the other girls actually, I think it was all girls that lived in that house, and they were all hot as shit, I remember there was even a third one that I had a crush on too, and I kind of, made my, uh, made my move, and she was just like, you're too nice, dude, I need a kind of an asshole boyfriend, and I was, like, kind of perplexed by that, I hadn't had a lot of experience with girls at that point, it was just like, huh, a girl would prefer an asshole, wow, well, thank god there's girls like that, because there's plenty of assholes out there, <laughs> but I wasn't one of them, uh, but I, I did have a crush on Morgan, and, uh, like, I remember leaving there one night, it was probably, yeah, that Saturday night, it was probably like 3 or 4 a.m. when I left their house, um, I was pretty drunk, I had just shaved my head bald, and I had big headphones on, so I was, I don't know, I was looking to get victimized, basically, and that's exactly what happened, I probably made it, Mmm, probably fifty, sixty paces from uh Stephanie's front door. And I was at the corner, I think, of hate and what would that be? Webster? Ugh. That's a... f I don't know. But it's lower hate in any case, right across from where the projects were. There's like nice projects there now. They're, but nobody would call them projects. They're nice. Uh but anyway, like I got tapped on the back, I believe, and I was playing, like, loud jungle music in my headphones, so I really heard nobody walk up on me at all, and I turned around, and I was facing a pistol, and, uh, a guy was yelling at me, and I was like, fuck, so I think I was able to pull my headphones down, and, he was just like, get on the fucking sidewalk, get on your stomach on the sidewalk, get down right now. And I was like, no sweat, no sweat, chill. You know, I was trying to kind of diffuse the situation. And I remember he had four friends with him too. Um, And so the main guy that uh, I talked to, I did get down on my stomach. Um, I remember it was on the on a hill, good old San Francisco. And I was facing up towards hate street on my stomach. And he put his knee in my back and put the gun to the back of my head and was like, give me all your shit, you know? And I was like, I've got a wallet, you know, I don't have any cash on me or anything. And he was like, you know, and I had a tribal gear chain wallet, (laughs) which were the thing back then. It was this gigantic fucking wallet. And uh, he was pulling on it, but you know, the chain wasn't breaking. And I was like, dude, you got to unhook it from my jeans, you know? could to take it and he was like fuck you know and he got under me a little bit and he unhooked it and he pulled my uh wallet out and it was like they had done it a million times before so there was the four other friends so they were all kind of at different distances to the corner from myself and the main guy who was on my back and each one of them, like the first one, he looked both ways on Hate Street and then ran straight across the street to the projects. And then the second one, pretty quickly after him, did exactly the same thing. Looked both ways and then ran to the projects. And they all did that until the last guy, who was on me, and he was just like, don't fucking move. Don't fucking move for a minute or two. And I was like, dude, I'm f- for, it's cool. Dude, I'm not going to fucking fuck around. Like, do, do your thing, you know? And he was, and so he got off of me, and he ran to the corner, he looked both ways, stashed his gun, and my wallet, and fucking bounced into the projects, and I was like, fuck, that was crazy, (laughs) pretty drunk, you know, and, uh, I think the music was still playing in the headphones, even though it was around my neck, so it was just this weird situation, I remember it being kind of rainy, and shiny, you know, and it was a wild moment. I was like, fuck, I just got robbed at gunpoint. That's sick. Now I wasn't tripping too bad. Cause there was really nothing in my wallet of value. I had my paycheck. That's why I think it was a Friday. Cause we would get paid every other Friday. And I remember specifically I had a paycheck in there, um, which they couldn't do anything with. Uh, I think they took a New Mexico driver's license. I needed to get a California one anyway. So I was just like, fuck it. I think I might have had my social security card in there, but that's never been necessary my whole life to have that. Um, So I wasn't really tripping. And the wallet I had gotten for free from Tribal Gear for doing graphics for them amongst all kinds of other shit they would send me. So I knew I could just replace that. And I was able to replace the paycheck on Monday and I had a great story to tell the general manager why I needed a reprint of my check. (laughs) But uh, I remember, too, that's, you know, I was still living down <coughs> at uh, Bush and Powell Street. And uh, so I was walk walking from Lower Haight over to there. And at some point, uh, I think I was near the Mint where they used to make uh, pennies and nickels and stuff uh, on Market Street. Behind there, I ran into an actual San Francisco police officer in a car. And I kind of waved him down, walked over and was like, Hey man, I just got robbed at gunpoint at like Hayton Webster. And he was like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And he was like, did they get anything of value? And I was like, not really. And he was like, well, could you ID them? And I was like, no, not really. And he's like, listen, I ain't trying to run up in the projects looking for a wallet that you don't need. And you know, no value, so just count yourself lucky, kid, that you didn't have it get worse, you know, but I'll, I'll keep my eye out, and I was like, fuck, all right, man, have a good night, and fucking walked home, and was just like, fuck, man, San Francisco is sick, I, you know, here it is, it, it it's something fucking sketchy happened to me, it, it really does pop off here, so I was, you know, I tried to be a lot more street smart, you know, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I might not wear my headphones if I was just out walking late at night like that. You know, if I was on the bus, I might keep the headphones on, but yeah, I I learned some lessons. I learned how sketchy it was on lower (laughs) heights to be extra careful over there. And that's pretty safe zone. I think these days I'm, I'm not so sure, but it was, it was sketchy as fuck back then. So I think earlier I'd mentioned Morgan who was, uh, Stephanie's roommate at that house on lower hate. And, uh, she, I kind of got the feeling that she was a lesbian. Um, that's just some, it was just a vibe and she was in a house full of girls. Uh, I don't know. And it was just San Francisco in the nineties, you know, it it seemed like it was just everybody's uh, sexual orientation was kind of up in the air uh, but I sure did have a crush on her, and we went out a few times, I kind of felt like she was just kind of humoring me, <laughs> I didn't really think she was into me, I don't know what, what it was, uh, but eventually, uh, we hooked up, and I'm, uh, to this day, if I smell chlorine, I think of her, she worked at the YMCA, uh, swimming pool at Embarcadero, And, uh, so often when I would see her, it was after work and she would, her hair especially would just smell like a swimming pool, like chlorine. (laughs) And, uh, I didn't mind it. And, uh, I, I, you know, it was just one of those things with different people and she kept her hair short. It was the cutest, not like a, wasn't like a pixie cut, but it was short. It was kind of boyish. I remember one of my buddies saw me and her together and later he asked me, he was like, dude, is that like fucking a dude from behind? And I was like, no, you fucking asshole. Because of her haircut? What a dick. You know, because she was actually super curvy. Wide hips, thin waist. Um, had, you know, not big breasts at all. Kind of like a pair, but she was really, really tall and a swimmer. um, Super fit and strong. And had the prettiest face. Just this cute, this fucking cute girl named Morgan. And uh, I think I did some graffiti pieces for her. And she thought that was pretty cool. Not all my girlfriends thought that was very cool. Um, But I remember things were going good with Morgan. I was so excited every time I would see her. And again, I hadn't had much sexual experience. um, Other than my first girlfriend at that point. Um, fuck, Morgan might have been the first girl after I broke up with uh, Lori. In any case, um, it was rad. It was different. Um, I remember it was really, I thought it was rare back then, but she shaved her pussy. And I think it was more because she uh, worked in a swimsuit and didn't want a big like poof there. Um I think she might have even explained that to me. Um and just yeah, cuz she just worked in a pool. It was just easier for her to deal with. And I remember her pussy tastes like chlorine sometimes too. <laughs> you know, it would go away after I, I'd lap at it for a little while. But uh yeah, it was just something about her that was special and I remember at some point I gave her a key to my apartment which to me was a big deal because that was like for sure I'm not seeing other girls you can now just pop in anytime you want and you know my place is yours and uh, at the same time I was doing LSD every Sunday Um, and one particular Sunday I blasted off. I took extra LSD than usual. I made it taken like three or four instead of just one and was really really cooking and I think I, like usual I would take it around noon or one o'clock in the afternoon and by eight or nine o'clock at night it would be kind of subsiding and I could kind of chill out maybe have some dinner and take a shower and watch a movie and be just fine for, uh, work on Monday morning, but that, uh, particular Sunday, uh, I got back to my apartment on Bush Street and was really, really high, seeing a lot of sparkles and colors and kind of like, I don't know, like the, the feeling of my breath just being like this huge, expansive movement of my whole body every time I would breathe in and out. Uh, not subtle at all. (laughs) Uh, and I got up to my apartment and I opened the door and there's Morgan. And I was like, fuck, this is so rad that she's here, but I'm fucking baked, like out of my mind tripping, you know? and so I just I think I just told her that straight up like I'm so glad you're here but I'm tripping really really crazy. And she was just like horny and excited to see me and was just like come on like I'm here let's fuck. I wanted I've been waiting. And I was like fuck all right let's do this, you know? And uh I remember just she would have to like physically like I think she was literally would slap me across the face cuz she could tell that in my eyes I was getting distracted by something other than her because I was just tripping like crazy I remember I could see through her and I could see like her veins and her like aura and all that kind of classic goofy ass trippy fucking nonsense that doesn't make any sense until you've actually taken LSD and then you know what the fuck I'm talking about but (laughs) I remember too I had a it was a Terrence McKenna video. It was like a a lecture that he did and somebody did like a it was like a mirror screen uh like rave visuals and it was him talking over it. I think it was about an hour long and I would when I would trip sometimes I would just put it on the T V and turn the, the sound off and just put some headphones on and just it would help me like uh imagine that I was flying through outer space to have something like that to focus on like psychedelic visuals. And so I, th- I feel like I remember putting that on while we were having sex <laughs> and, uh, just been like, Hey, g- give me a minute. Let me just put this on. And she was like, okay, well, what's up? What are you doing? And I put it on and she's like, Oh, that's pretty. That looks nice. Cause then it made the room look cool. Kind of like a, like a club. And so she was into that and, uh, But I just remember she kept, like, having to uh, tell me to, like, pay attention, (laughs) which is terrible. Remember she had this cool move, too, where, like, if we were in missionary position and I had her kind of knees up by my ears and was pushing her forward, she was so tall she could reach underneath and, like, uh, play with my balls while I was fucking her. God damn, ooh, fucking random-ass detail, I know, but that was dope. I, I don't think my first girlfriend ever did that. And again, these are those early times when those little things were like, whoa, that was the first time that happened. Um, But things didn't work out much longer with Morgan. Um, I think we probably hooked up two or three more times after that, and sh- then she decided she needed to stop seeing me because um, she was... I think she had moved out of the house on lower hate and was living with somebody else and who was a lesbian. And Morgan uh, broke up with me to be with her new roommate, (laughs) which made sense perfectly. Cause the whole time I kind of was like, this girl seems really, I don't know. She just seemed like more attracted to girls, frankly. And I was just kind of dumbfounded that she found me attractive at all and was, just stoked, you know, felt like, uh, like, uh, unworthy of her attention, but she gave it to me and that was cool. Uh, I think too, sort of about around September of 94, uh, I think I went to the, my first Folsom street fair and I was with, uh, I think I was with Soap and Felon and Sarah and Chloe, Um, The usual crew. uh, And we... I I, I think we went straight there. I think we had all only been in San Francisco a little while. And we'd heard about this infamous... Like gay men. Like the leather men. Like the really hardcore, nasty, sketchy gay dudes. (laughs) Like... I don't know. I mean, they never hassled me or, or any of my friends. But, uh, you know, they they would be like... There'd be some real deal shit going on on the street. They'd, like, close off Folsom Street for a few blocks. And at either end, I think they were there just to kind of... I think there were organizers there to maybe discourage people that were under 18 from going through there. Because there would be guys with their dicks out. Um, you know... <laughs> big fucking crazy dicks even just stroking them hardest rocks you know with fucking assless chaps and stuff and i would just be there with the the homies and the girls and we would just go to like there were different stages at either end of it and it was more of a mixed crowd um where the dance area was and the super sketchy, like, um, gay stuff was happening, mostly in the alleys off to the side of Folsom. So we kind of knew where to go and where not to go to not get caught up in something that we weren't comfortable with. But at the same time, it was like, San Francisco, this is their town, this is their party, let's see how they fucking get down, you know. And it was fucking wild. I I'm, I, must admit, it I was a shocker. But again, we had fun. I think we took LSD, maybe some E, and we we're just dancing for hours in the afternoon with this wonderful mixed crowd. I mean, mixed like you wouldn't fucking believe. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking fun. And uh, those were always really cool. I, I always love that part of San Francisco, the kind of gay culture, and that, you know, we could kind of drop in on at uncertain times, like the gay pride parade and stuff. And, I I always loved it, you know? Never felt threatened by it or intimidated or anything like that. Um, I remember, too, I think it was in October of that year, um, our friend Icon threw a party. And Icon was this dude. He would write Icon, I-C-O-N, all over San Francisco. But he would also do these candy canes, like... Six-foot-tall candy canes, like red and white stripes, just like you'd have at Christmas time, And uh, he would paint those all over town. There was a lot of people that had, like, little monikers other than their graffiti names, you know. I think Twist was the one that really set that off with his, like, screws and reminisce doing the horses. And it was just one of those things at the time. Some people had that in their bag. Um... But, yeah, these, these candy canes were cool. And uh, and he got up a lot. So he was respected. And he lived above, I'm not sure what it was back then, maybe a Carl's Jr. But right at the corner of Columbus and Broadway, uh, where North Beach and Chinatown collide. And it's, like, where all the strip clubs and bars and uh, all that is just right there. It's, like, super, super cracking. Uh, and... Back then, it was just like, you know, people, I don't know how to describe it. Like, people would come from all over the Bay Area to go to North Beach. It was one of the destinations, whereas most people, I think, these days kind of go to the mission for nightlife and whatnot. A lot of people would gravitate towards uh, North Beach back then. Um, it was super, super cracking, and it was cool that Icon had a apartment right there above it all, and we could go out on his roof and see columbus and broadway and it was just that was special but anyway he had this party this one night we all got invited again i was with the uh, the same crew of soap and felon and sarah and chloe just like i you know said about the folsom street fair that was our little click and uh we went to this party and we're having a good time i think there were kegs you know It was just one of those kind of things it was like fuck 100 200 people there it was nuts and it was super fun. It was a lot of graffiti writers. Um, there was some people there that had beef. So it was a little tense, I remember, too. But at some point in the night, to get out of the, out onto the roof, he had to go out a window of his apartment. And then there was about maybe three or four feet uh, of a drop to the roof so you kind of had to go out the window backwards and kind of carefully holding with your hands on the windowsill and then just kind of jump down to the to the roof it wasn't far you know and it wasn't difficult it's just that's how you had to do it so unfortunately our friend chloe if i remember right was going through the window and some drunk assholes were in a hurry or didn't care or I don't know, but she got pushed out of the window and fell, and she was crying. she actually got hurt, it sucked. we were fucking pissed, so me soap felon I think there were a few other people Fors might have been with us f o r s uh fuck yeah, I don't know that was the thing. there was a few writers that came with us, and we are kind of running around the party like, who fucking pushed our friend out of the window? You know, what the fuck? Who who did that? Who did that? Just asking everybody. And they said that some people ran outside right after it happened and, you know, told us maybe that was them. And so we ran outside. And as soon as we got out onto, uh, I guess that would have been Broadway Street. uh, We're mad. We're ready to fight and we're just kind of looking around like, you know, where'd they go? Where'd they go? You know? And it just so happened that as we came out all mad as fuck, there was a gang of dudes from somewhere in the East Bay, um, that were just drunk and looking for trouble. They already had weapons on them. They had dogs. They were in the city to beat people up straight up. And, uh, That would happen sometimes when people felt like they needed to show off and San Francisco kind of happened to be the big city, but also kind of a place where those kind of people aren't going to find a lot of um, pushback. Like you try to pull that shit in Oakland, you get shot in the face. But in San Francisco and North Beach, the locals aren't, going there in particular so it's kind of easy just to go vic people and feel good about yourself and that's what these guys were doing and you know i remember seeing soap come out and looking at one of the guys and just being like are you the fucking dude that pushed my friend out the fucking window and he was like maybe and bill was just like what no are you the fucking dude that pushed our friend out the window and the dude kept saying maybe and Bill was just so frustrated. He was like, "Fuck you guys, you're not the ones we're looking for." And the guys just wanted to fight. And at a certain point, I remember felon was uh facing off with one of them and he recognized that they had weapons and dogs and was like not trying to get into it with some randoms. We were after some specific people that hurt our friend and we weren't just trying to look for fights like these assholes. So he was like, I ain't going to fight you. You're not the ones we're looking for. And this dude just straight punched him in the face, like full force. And I remember Doug just shook it off and just stood there and looked at the dude square in the face and was like, I'm not going to fight you. You're not the ones we're looking for. And he got hit again. And I was like, fuck, this is not going to end well. (laughs) So I don't know if I don't know who fucking started running first, but we all bounced, and we're fucking graffiti writers, like, we know how to bounce, no bullshit, and we did, and then, uh, I think we got back to, uh, I I think we got back to Sarah's house, and we waited for the girls to come back, and Chloe came back, and she was feeling better, she fell on her back, and was pretty fucked up, if I remember right, but she was able to walk around, and, you know, she was fine within a few days, uh, and it was just so fucking crazy. It was such a gnarly night. And I remember too, like, again, I I feel like this memory is accurate. But that same night, um, we were back at Sarah's, me and Soap and Felon and the girls. And we had all kind of continued to drink after the fight and just to kind of, like, break the tension. And so by the end of the night, um, we were so drunk. And I feel like soap and felon just started fighting each other. They just started like hitting each other in the face, and I was like, "What the fuck like we we just barely escaped death <laughs> and now, hours later, in just kind of drunken tomfoolery, they're fucking punching each other like you know like like uh like best friends, you know it's just so silly uh but the, uh, yeah, anyway, those, those are fucking crazy times, Remember also too, like, every Thursday night, we would watch, uh, 90210 and Melrose Place, when they were new episodes, we would do that at Sarah's, and we'd take ecstasy sometimes, and, uh, I remember, uh, Soap and his girl would, uh, at the fucking commercials would go in their room and fuck real quick, and come back, all flustered. <laughs> they were they were funny. They would fucking fucking bathrooms at uh bars and stuff and outside all over the place and they were they were fun. They were inspiring in that way for sure. I I think in uh November of ninety four, uh some friends from Albuquerque came to visit, I think for a rave weekend kind of thing. Um I don't know. I don't think they stayed with me. I think they might have stayed at a hotel. Maybe had two rooms or something, um, if I remember correctly. But in, in any way, you know, uh, it was like five friends, um, two girls, or no, th- it was three girls and two guys, and uh, we went to, if I remember right, we went to a. Com- it was a, a community party. It, community was a rave uh promoter and it was spelled c-o-m-e and then the second word unity so it was like come unity um which kind of had a sexual connotation <laughs> to it which i thought was f- kind of funny and cool um but i think i remember uh we s- saw the IGIT boys i think they were from england i-d-j-u-t boys um and i remember the set was pretty sick I remember the the big thing about the the rave was it was outdoors. It was probably an hour drive from San Francisco, which back then you sure as shit were hoping you had good directions because we didn't have Google Maps. We didn't have cell phones. We had just written out directions. And sometimes these raves were in really isolated places like this one was. And... you you just you just be driving and driving and driving and be like I can't believe there's a rave out here and then that last minute you'd start to see lights and hear the (laughs) of the bass and be like oh fuck it is here we fucking we made it we fucking made it and at that one when we got there it was dark like it was probably midnight um we were out in a rural area there were no streetlights anywhere around. Um, there was kind of some f- farm buildings and industrial kind of buildings, I remember, where we parked. And they had some kind of like uh, overhead streetlight kind of things. But otherwise, it was super, super, super dark. Um, and there was no um, sound. It was like dead silent other than the the sound system playing the house music. Um, and so we just kind of followed the music from the parking lot uh it was all dirt and when we got to the like gate where uh we paid and gave our tickets and stuff um i could see what looked like people holding glow sticks dancing like 30 40 feet above the main crowd in just in space in the darkness and was just like what the fuck are people flying (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what the fuck is going on and was asking my friends if they saw the same thing and they were like yeah yeah i see what you're looking at that's fucking weird and so we got in the rave and we're fucking doing our thing and we we take our drugs i think we took lsd and e that was kind of the usual combo for me i'm not sure what everybody else did mushrooms were sometimes in the mix as were fuck all kinds of stuff really anyway um so we start getting pretty high and decide to venture out of the the main dance floor to cool off a little bit. And we start walking out towards the edge of the crowd and we're seeing, you know, the people dancing kind of what still looks like in the dark like that they're floating in in the air. So we go out and eventually we realize there's all these like little dirt hills all over the place at the edge of the the main crowd. And it just didn't make any sense. Like, what the fuck is all this? You know? And they were like... look looked like they were shaped by people. They weren't just like naturally windblown little hills and things. So eventually we realized, oh, there's just people standing on top of these little mounds. These little hills. And they're dancing. But it's so dark that you can't see, you know, what they're standing on. Uh, so So we had a good time, you know? And it was super that was a super good one. And I remember we, we were there until the sun came up and just as the sun was starting to light up the sky and take away the total blackness, you could see that we were on a motorcycle racetrack <laughs> and all the fucking hills and stuff we were standing on were the jumps at the racetrack that was, you know, back at the edge of, you know, where this big flat spot was where they set up the sound system for the, the dance area and whatnot. But it was just such a revelation to be like, oh man, we're out in the middle of nowhere at a fucking dirt bike track. <laughs> All these fucking ravers. Oh man. It took us a while to get out of there because everybody kind of left at the same time. And it was just like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cars trying to leave on a little country dirt road. Oh my God. That was that was a good one. Uh, I remember too when... Uh, they were all still visiting we we decided to leave my apartment on bush street um take some l s d and just kind of walk around the neighborhood and we explored knob Hill and we were kind of exchanging our uh hallucinations, you know what we were seeing and it it was really really funny and uh I had a friend, one of the girls that was um on the trip and uh we had made out a few times um Just almost in a friendly way, that was kind of the thing in the rave days. You just we would be on ecstasy and we would tell each other our deepest secrets and fears, you know, and dreams, and you'd really connect. And sometimes it just felt natural and appropriate to just kiss and hold each other, and it was pretty innocent. Um, and often didn't go past that you know sometimes it did of course um but sometimes it didn't but in this case um I remember we were just up on uphill and I asked my friend like hey do you want to go back to my place just the two of us and and fool around it and we were so high and she I remember she was just like yeah that sounds like a fucking great thing to do right now let's go do that and I remember we left and the other three friends that were left behind just laughed because they knew exactly what we were going to do and knew that we had never had sex before. So we're kind of like egging us on. And sure enough, we did. We went back to my place. It was super fun. Oh, yeah, it was good sex. We had a great time. And uh, maybe an hour or so later, all my friends, our, our friends showed up back at my apartment and kind of gave us a good ridicule. And a, it was a good giggle. But we weren't uh, we weren't tripping. And uh, I still definitely consider that girlfriend that I hooked up with. She was such a sweetheart. I, I think I took her to her senior prom when I was in college, when she was still in high school. And I wore overalls. <laughs> they almost didn't want to let me in because I was supposed to be informal. But I had like a sport coat on over the overalls. And I was like, "What's what's the problem here? But she was fucking cool. And I think like that year um ended uh with a rave at the cow palace in san francisco these promoters called cool world through these just enormous fucking ridiculous raves sometimes they were considered a little corny to the hardcore like old school ravers that were Going to like illegal underground parties. You know, the cool world parties were very legit, security, medical staff, you know, the whole nine. They were a real production. I think they were probably run by an investment corporation that was just cashing in on the the rave thing, you know. Uh, But they they fucking threw some crazy parties. I think there was like sixty thousand people at the one that I went to that that New Year's. I was with my friend Sylvia. And uh, she was fun. She was another one from Baltimore, friends with Soap and Fallon and that whole crew. I think Soap dated her for a while, too, if I remember right. But she was just really, really fun. I think she was working in, like, social care back then, like hospice work or something. So she was, like, us, had a huge heart and was just really fun. And I was super down to do LSD kind of anytime, anywhere, and so was she. So we were just we were buds we were tight and we often went to raves together and didn't have to w- kind of worry about each other and if she met somebody she wanted to go off with that was perfectly fine and it was kind of the same for me um but i remember we were in line for that rave and fucking it was a new year's party and there must have been fuck there must have been like 20,000 people in line at at about midnight like literally like you, you couldn't believe the fucking line and it was like eight people across and the security was just uh doing their best to pat everybody down and get everybody's tickets and get everybody in before midnight but there was just way too many people and at a certain point somebody a group of people just started rushing the door And we're like, there's no fucking way I paid 40 bucks to go to this rave. I'm high as shit right now. I want to be inside. And they got us outside dealing with security. And it looks like it's never going to end because there's like 20 fucking thousand of us. So, everybody just rushed the doors. And, uh, for better or worse, the security guards just got out of the way. Straight up. And, uh, it was just absolute fucking chaos for a while. Um, but I think me and Sylvia were inside at midnight when they announced it. And it was like, you know, a big deal. But it was really scary and dangerous. It was a lot of people. There were definitely some people. That's the thing with those big raves. Like the there was people that would go that didn't normally go. Like we were going to them once a week. And there were certain people that would only go, like, at the holidays to the gigantic ones with their group of people from work or whatever. And they would do a bunch of drugs that they weren't familiar with and maybe do a little more than usual. And so there was kind of a contingent of, like, (laughs) sloppy-ass, fucking, like, part-time ravers at those things. Uh, But often they were, they had the best DJs just because they could pay so much, you know, and money talks so that was an advantage i pretty much would go anywhere that funky techno tribe was playing and i I think they were playing at that rave that night um usually at those big raves there would be like four or five different areas so you could kind of pick your vibe and also your kind of beats per minute like how fast you're going to be dancing so they'd be at the, the kind of the bottom end would be the chill zone, which is where I would always end up just to kind of take a break. If, or sometimes if I was just feeling a little too body high and needed to just lie down or sit somewhere quietly and, and comfortable, uh, the chill zone was the place to go. And sometimes they played really good music in there too, stuff like the Orb and the KLF and whatnot. Um, real chill, real trippy um, very relaxing, uh, you know, they would sell these, like, uh, drinks that had all kinds of, like, uh, stuff to get you hydrated and give you energy, because often you'd be so high at a rave and you'd be dancing for four or five hours and realize, dude, I haven't had anything to eat or drink, I haven't had any water, and you'd be leaving the raves feeling really kind of dizzy and fucked up, but if you were able to afford to go to the chill zone, they often had like energy drinks and stuff that you could get. And they were often very affordable too. And run by like old hippie ladies whose kids were probably at the rave and just felt responsible to make sure the kids were hydrated. (laughs) Uh, but they always had cool. They were, they were cool, man. I remember the the drinks were dope. It was like being on another planet. (laughs) Uh, and then, you know, there would usually be like a, in the bay area especially, there'd be like an electro funk room where people would be break dancing, that kind of shit, popping and locking. Um then there would be like a house area uh kind of like real standard um easy to dance to. Uh and then maybe like a techno room where the BPMs are a little higher, maybe 140 BPM. And then even higher than that at the certain rapes was like Gabber and hardcore, which is just like incredibly, uh, abrasive. And, uh, you'd have to be actually just pretty much on straight up crystal meth <laughs> to appreciate Gabber. And it's kind of a limited in how you could dance to it. Cause it was so fast. Um, but I, I see people fucking with that Gabber style these days. And I think that's pretty great. It's, it's funny to see. Um, yeah, but that was, that was basically 94. I'm trying to think it was anything else from that year that really stands out. I think that's about it. I'm looking at my notes. I think I covered most things that I wanted to. So yeah, next time I'll pick up in, uh, January of 95 and, uh, continue. Thanks again for, all the kind words and encouragement in these like reminiscing, uh, kind of, uh, uh, yeah, just me just remembering shit and talking about it, uh, feels weird as fuck to do this, but I do appreciate all the feedback. So I'll, I'll keep doing these and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening.